Hello, and welcome to the Verse Verse Podcast. My name is Justin Thomas, and I'm really excited for our journey from Genesis to Revelation a couple of chapters a week. My goal is that you would grow in your ability to understand the story that the Bible tells as a whole, as well as your ability to read the Bible for yourself. I would love to connect with you on social media. You can find us at verse slash verse, all spelled out, on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in. We pick up tonight in 2 Kings chapter 7. For the duration of the book so far, we've basically just seen extension after extension of God's patience. We're anticipating judgment coming on the house of Omri, the line of kings that are uh, over Israel, specifically the family of Ahab, but it hasn't happened yet. In fact, where we find ourselves tonight is where we left ourselves last week, which is a bit of a cliffhanger. Ben-Hadad, who again is the king of Syria, has the capital city of Israel, Samaria, surrounded And they keep their siege in place until the city is starving to death. And so we were told in the last chapter that even scraps of food and barely edible things were going for hugely inflated prices. And it's worth asking at this story if we've been paying attention, is this it? Is this when it finally comes down is the only way that God can deal with uh, the children of Ahab and with that rule to, to end Israel entirely? However, Elisha now speaks into the situation in chapter 7, verse 1, with a prophecy. He says, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Now, obviously, there uh, a seah is a measurement of weight for an amount of those two grains, and a shekel is also a measurement of weight, but it's a measure in silver, okay? But basically, what he's saying here is this time tomorrow, the economy is going to be completely restored to normal. Now, remember, that's not how economies work. Look at gas prices, right? Gas prices are very quick to go up and very slow to come down. And he's talking about a full restoration in 24 hours. Remember, this city has been under siege. Uh, Their farms trampled, their uh, reserves completely eaten up, okay? This is not just the army's going to go away tomorrow. That would still leave them starving, just not surrounded, okay? And Elisha here says, by this time tomorrow, everything is going to be reversed. It's going to be back to normal. There will be plenty again. Um, the The economy itself will return to normal. Now, a man who's standing there Not anyone of any real significance, just notice verse 2, the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God. So he's present. He's not really there for any particular reason except that he has this position in service of the king and he can't help himself. He says aloud, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Basically, you can imagine Elijah gives his prophecy here and this guy just snickers you know he just you know he can't believe that something so stupid would come out of the prophet's mouth and he says it doesn't matter if suddenly the heavens opened and food you know just fell from heaven there's no way that this could happen and anonymously 
Elijah looks at him and he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. You're going to witness this, but not enjoy it, not participate in it. Now we get the story of God's deliverance, and I have to confess, this is one of my favorite chapters in all of the Old Testament. In fact, when I had the opportunity for the first time to preach for adults, this is the passage I preached. It's always been a favorite of mine, Um, and significantly, it's because it seems to me thematically and even symbolically to be a perfect stand-in for the way that God always works. This is a template story of God's deliverance. And so notice how it starts in verse 3. There were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. Okay, and so get the scene here. The city is surrounded and they're at the very edge of the city. Now why are they there? Because they have a leprous skin condition. Generally that means they're not allowed in the city at all, but since outside the city is armies, they're just right there pressed up against the gate, but still separate from the people. Now as you would imagine, because these men are on the fringe of society, the starvation that's going on everywhere else is even worse here. They are at the end of their rope and, and they're having a conversation here. They begin to ask one another, why are we sitting here until we die? And so they say, okay, if we just stay put, death is inevitable. What can we do? And they're throwing out options. But look how slim the options are. Verse 4, if we say let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and we'll die there. So they go, well, we could move into the city, but there's nothing there for us either, so we still die. So now, and this is their plan, come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. That's the enemy army that has them surrounded. If they spare our lives, we shall live, and they kill us, we shall only die. Now, that is obviously a plan of terrible desperation. What would the Syrian army want with four men with a leprous skin condition, highly contagious, ostracized by all cultures at that time, and so availing for mercy from the other side as if they're just going to house and feed their enemies, and not just their enemies, but the lowest caste of the lowest who have this contagious condition. It doesn't make any sense, but it's the only place where there's even a slim option because the truth is it's only the Syrians who have what they need to survive, which is food. And so they're completely at a loss here. And so they come up with this plan and they go to follow it out. And notice verse 5, they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. Because the Lord had made the army of Syrians hear the sound of chariots and horses, the sound of a great army, So they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. Okay, so get the scene here. As they're coming into the camp, they find it empty. And we find out the reason is because suddenly all the Syrians who were in this camp hear a sound of a great army with chariots as if they're about to get trounced. The idea here is that somehow Israel got a spy out through enemy lines and appealed to the other powers that be, which have now come with reinforcements and are about to surround the Syrians who have Samaria surrounded. Okay. Now, this sound that they hear, the only thing in close quarters is four starving leprous men. Right. 
One of the things that we can't say about this story is that these men are somehow great warriors or victorious. In fact, when we step back and we ask exactly what God is doing here, because I'll spoil the plot, uh, God is at work to fulfill the words of Elijah here. This is how it's playing out, okay? He doesn't need the lepers to fight the fight. He just needs them to be eyewitnesses. That's all he needs is somebody who happens to be in the camp to find it deserted. And so they come across this uh, and notice verse 7, they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. They don't take the time to pack up. They don't take the time even to unrope their animals. They just start running. Okay, and so when they get there, uh, you know, they see a completely empty camp with animals intact, with tents intact, as we'll see, uh, dinner is set on the table of the tents inside, but it's a ghost town, you know, think tumbleweed rolling down uh, the center of the scene here. And so, verse 8, when the lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank. Okay. You can imagine it's a little bit mysterious, they're looking around, I doubt they're thinking, is it a trap, because what for? But they're confused, they don't understand what's happening, but they finally peek inside a tent, and the table is set, and they haven't eaten for days and days and days, they are literally starving, and so they take a seat, they eat, and they drink their fill, and then they notice that the tent is full of loot, of silver and gold, so they carried off silver and gold and clothing, and went and hid them. Okay, so they start to build a stash from this giant uh, provision that God has given them. And then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Now, let's point out the obvious here. God cares for these four men. And clearly here, he provides for them and saves their lives. But that's not the whole of God's plan. As I said, he doesn't want them just to be participants in what he's receiving here. He doesn't need them to do the work, but he desires for them to be witnesses. And so notice how their conscience kicks into gear, verse 9. They said to one another, this isn't right. We're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they're benefiting from this victory, this unearned victory, this surprising victory. Uh, it's saved their lives. It's actually made them economically in much better circumstances. And then their conscience kicks in and they go, this, this isn't right. It's wrong for us to enjoy this victory, to know that it exists when there are people who are starving just on the other side of the wall because they don't know, right? There's enough for the whole city to be saved but they don't know that it exists. Their salvation is already accomplished, but they're not enjoying it. They have no part in it. And so their conscience kicks in, and they recognize here um, that that cultivates a significant responsibility on their part. They don't just say it's a good idea for us to share this good news. They say it's a bad idea not to, right? We would be worthy of punishment to withhold this. And so they come up with a plan to go back to the city and tell the king's household. So, verse 10, they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city. Okay. Remember, generally, they're not allowed in the city. So they've just been hanging out at the very edge of the city, right outside the gates. And now they come and they get the gatekeeper's attention and they explain, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, 
There was no one to be seen or heard. There, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. And the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. Okay, and so here they carry a message to the king, this surprising news of these four lepers, verse 12. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I'll tell you what the Syrians have done to us. Now we've seen this consistently with this particular king. Everything he interprets as a bad omen, right? And so when Naaman uh, has been sent by his uh, young maiden in his house to find Elijah to receive healing, right? He uh, contacts Ben-Hadad, this same king, the king of Syria, and he says, I hear that there's a prophet of God who can heal me. And he goes, well, I'd be glad to help. I'll send an official letter. And so the letter basically says, I want to send my number one general into your land so that he can be healed by your God. And when the king of Israel hears this, he goes, what a trap. He's just picking a fight with me as if I have the opportunity to make alive or to kill, right? When the, uh, in the last chapter, when a woman called out to him for judgment, and explained that things had gotten so bad in the city that she and the woman she lived with had agreed to eat her son, and then the following day they would eat the other woman's son, and now the woman had hidden her child and she wanted justice. He says the same thing. He says, can I fix this in any way? Can I open the storehouse? Is there anything that I can give you? Right? He's, his approach to everything is uh, negative and fearful and skeptical even when yesterday, just yesterday, he was basically put on watch for just this possibility, right? Just the other day, Elijah said, tomorrow, everything's going to be fine. So here he gets this mysterious news, but he doesn't trust it. He doesn't think it could be possible. And so, verse 12, the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I'll tell you what the servants have done to us. They know we're hungry. Therefore, they've gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. Now, that's actually a pretty clever plot. I don't think it's ever one that's been attempted. It's a little Trojan horsey, a little bit, right? But, but this is what he thinks up. And so, notice it's his servants who come up with a solution. He just, he just says, no way. This is just a trap, but his servants speak up. Remember, they are starving as well. One of his servants said, let some men take five of the remaining horses. Do you see that word remaining? It's another reminder of how bad things have gotten. Where have all the horses gone? They've been eaten. There's only a handful of them left, okay? From that handful, they say, take five of them, uh, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. In other words, their mentality is just like the lepers were in the beginning. If we don't do something, we're going to perish anyways. So we might as well put our lives on the line and see if this slim possibility may actually be the case. So, verse 14, they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king, So notice this, they don't just go to the camp and find it empty. They go beyond the camp, all the way to the border of Israel, following the footsteps of this retreating army. And along the way, they find things that have been discarded, 
because they're trying to lighten their load to get away quicker, or things that have been forgotten because they won't even turn around to pick them up when they've been dropped. They find a single sandal, right, laying there, and somebody didn't even take the time, risk it to turn around and put it back on their foot for the rest of the journey. They just keep continuing, and so that is the evidence they need. And so they return to the king in haste and tell him what's going on. Verse 16. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. And so again, recognize how God does this. And side note, remember who he's doing it for. This is the capital city of the nation of Israel which has not only forsaken the covenant of God by worshiping at two set-up altars under Jeroboam, right? Two set-up calves for worship instead of in Jerusalem at the temple where the ark is, where the priesthood is. But on top of that, have fully embraced the worship of Baal. And at the head of the pack is the family of Ahab living and ruling And here, Syria comes and surrounds them. And remember, just a side note, Syria is part of God's judgment. That's been true as far as we've read so far. He's a regular tool in God's hands to remind his people, but especially for the household of Ahab. It's going to be a particular king who we'll meet in just a minute, Haziel, who is going to finish the work that Elijah started, overthrowing the worship of Baal. Okay? So despite that, God delivers this entire city. Now this is a striking paradigm, but maybe it's not as striking as what we find in the book of Jonah. Okay? Because nevertheless, these are still Abraham's descendants. These are still God's people, his chosen people, the apple of his eye. Right? But when we get to the book of Jonah, Jonah is sent on a mission to Nineveh, which is the capital city not of Israel or of Judah, but of Assyria. Now, winding the plot forward quite a ways, Assyria is going to be God's final judgment on these people, Israel. Okay. That is after the book of Jonah. Okay. Now, interestingly enough, just worth pointing out, we know that Jonah is familiar with the ministry of Joel, another one of the minor prophets. And Joel explicitly says that's going to go down, that it's going to be Assyria who brings judgment on Israel. And we know that Jonah is familiar with Joel because he quotes from it. So, understand Jonah's mindset. These are foreigners who worship false gods, who have no covenant with Israel, who hate our guts, who are terrible people, by the way. They were known for the viciousness of uh, their campaigns and basically only took second place in history to the Babylonians who come after them. Okay? And Jonah hears that God wants him to preach a message to call Nineveh to repentance, and he refuses. And he explains at the end of the book that the reason is because he knows that when people repent, God is merciful. And he doesn't want mercy for Assyria. It's an interesting thing because as God tries to talk Jonah down from his judgmental position, which is ironic, because God is a just judge. In fact, he's going to bring under, uh, under the message of Nahum judgment on Assyria just a generation later. But as he's talking Jonah down, I want you to listen to what he says. 
This is in Jonah chapter 4. So at this point, Jonah's set up front row seats for the destruction of Nineveh, and it hasn't happened. And he finally realizes that God's actually going to forgive this city and not bring about judgment. And so uh, in verse 9 of chapter 4, God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he says, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, as well as much cattle? He says, shouldn't I have mercy on Nineveh, a city that is full of people? And the idea there of not knowing your right hand from your left is not an expression of ignorance, but of innocence. He's basically saying there's 120,000 children in this city. Do you want all of them to just perish along with? And notice the book of Jonah ends with that question. It just stops there. The purpose of the book of Jonah is to work out our own problems in our own heart. We can assume that Jonah eventually gets the message and changes his heart. I say that because he's the most likely author for the book. Okay? So he's telling kind of his version of Augustine's confessions, laying it all on the table. But he leaves God's last word out there, and it's a question. Do you do right to be angry? Should I not pity Nineveh? Right, And so that's what we see playing out here in the land of Israel is uh, God once again has compassion upon his people and brings about deliverance. Even the quintessential act of citywide judgment in the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah, involves this same tension. Remember in Genesis chapter 18, as God uh, is standing with Abraham and overlooking Sodom, and he explains, I've been hearing a report, a report of deep injustice in the city. The oppressed are crying out, and I'm going to go down, and I'm going to check it out. And Abraham, no doubt thinking of his nephew Lot, starts to say, will you destroy it if you find 50 righteous men living in that city? He says, if there's 50 righteous, I'll spare it. Abraham pushes a little bit further. He says, what if there's only 40? Even for 40. How about 30? How about 15? What about 10? And God says, even if I find 10 righteous men in Sodom, I will spare the entire city. But that's not what's found in Sodom. We find one, air quotes, righteous man, Lot, And even he has to be removed before the judgment can fall. The angels say, we cannot do this until we get you out of Dodge, right? God's mercy is so present. Notice here what Syria doesn't do, and this blows my mind. Uh, Excuse me, Samaria. We don't see sackcloth and ashes. We don't see a big prayer meeting. We don't see them catching what's going on and falling on their knees before the Lord and crying out for deliverance. We don't see them breaking their idols and throwing them over the wall as an act of repentance. We don't see any of that. We just see God move for deliverance and then invite people into it. And the the thing that I love about this story is even when he chooses witnesses, he doesn't send, you know, the person who's won a Pulitzer He doesn't contact the king or anyone in his party, just four leprous men. See, 
like I said, I think this chapter functions as a primary an, uh, image of the way God works and the role that he's given us in life is much like these lepers. We're just witnesses. The psalmist cries out, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I've been thinking about that lately and I've come to realize that that expression implies personal experience, doesn't it? We can't imagine somebody saying, here, come, taste, come, see, come, enjoy, who doesn't actually know firsthand, right? That's just human nature, although let's be honest, it's more human nature to say, does this taste funny to you, right? We're much likely to share bad things with people than good, but that language, taste and see, is not just an invitation, it's an invitation from personal experience, and that's the role the lepers play. They have encountered good news and they realize their responsibility to share it. They invite people to enjoy the victory that God has already given. But remember here, the story is not over because there was one man who at the very beginning of the story when the prophecy was given that tomorrow God is going to work in such a way that the entire economy will be uprighted. And he said, if God even opened windows from heaven, could it possibly be? And Elijah says, you're going to see it, but you will not taste it. And so notice what happens, verse 17. The king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaved, leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died. And as the man of God said when the king came down to him, for when the man of God had said to the king, two seas of barley, barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a sea of fine flour for a shekel about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria. The captain had answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. I don't think it's hard to imagine what happens here, right? He's trying to do crowd control with a starving people and access to food, and they just overwhelm him in their need to get food, and he's trampled to death. He sees the salvation, but he doesn't taste of it. And we need to recognize, even in the big picture of what God is doing in judgment, every eye will see God's salvation in Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean they'll taste of it personally. That has to be responded to in faith. That has to be received even when it comes from the mouth of people like us, even when it's the testimony of a handful of lepers. And so God works in this way, and remember, that's surprising, because what we're anticipating, what we're waiting for is judgment, and not just over Ahab's house, but Israel as a whole, all the way back in the time of Jeroboam, we know where this is going. And God patiently, over the course of hundreds of years, of sending his prophets, of warning them to turn back, and it's been the same even with wicked Ahab's household. Chapter 8, now Elijah had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, okay, remember this is the woman who built an apartment for Elijah, and then he asked, what, what can I do in return? She said, I don't need anything from you, but he knew that she'd never had a son, and so he promises that she'll have one miraculously, she does, and then he dies in, in his young age, and Elijah brings him back to life. This woman he goes to her and he gives her a warning of another act of God trying to get Israel's attention, a famine. And so notice what he says. He says, arise and depart from your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land 
for seven years. Again, we see a parallel between the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, his disciple, right? A seven-year famine was right out of Elijah's bag of tricks. That's something that we've already seen here, and so we see again this taking place. And what's, uh, what's especially interesting to me here is at this point we're so familiar with how things work in God's economy with Israel. We don't even learn about Elijah here going before the king to talk about the famine, although we can assume that he does. We don't even learn about what impact this has. We just learn about Elijah's concern for this one particular woman who's been a good host to him. And so he says, you need to get out of the land because there's going to be nothing here for seven years. So go to another place and stay away. So verse two, the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of seven years, when the woman returned from the land of Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, tell me all the great things Elijah has done. Okay. And so notice here, she's coming back and she's coming to see the king. And the reason to see is, is pretty easy. Okay. As a woman who we assume from the way this story is told, her husband has now passed on. She's left behind her land where she lived, the land where she worked, right, uh, as a farm to provide for herself and for her son, and it's slowly in this seven-year period just been taken over by squatters, by neighbors, by others, okay? And so she needs the king to restore the land for her, and it just so happens that as she comes... To the king's quarter, Gehazi, who we've encountered before, one of Elijah's servants, uh, is in the king's quarters talking about the things that Elijah has done. And notice verse 5, while he was telling the king how Elijah had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her, for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, my lord, O king, here is the woman. And here is the son whom Elijah restored to life. I want you to see this in two directions, okay? This is both for the benefit of the woman, obviously, right? This becomes an open door. She has an introduction as being a, a significant friend of Elijah's. Remember Elijah's original offering? In my high up connections, what can I do for you? And she says, I need nothing. But here Elijah's name opens the door even to uh, the king of Israel here, who is not always on friendly terms. But I also want to see, uh, I want you to see that this is for the sake of the king. Okay? Here, he's hearing the story of how God has worked compassionately through Elijah, and the woman comes walking through the door, and the son that's been raised to life by the power of the God of Israel is right there in the present, and she testifies and says, yeah, that's who I am. I think the thing we need to understand here, once again, is that God is so compassionate. This one widow who gets it, he preserves her from seven years of famine. But he's also so compassionate that this king who does not get it is not left without a witness. Okay. There's an occasion where Jesus, as he's entering in to Jerusalem, Riding on a donkey like Palm Sunday. He's, he's riding in. Everybody is praising Hosanna. Save now in the name of the Lord. And they're rejoicing. And the Pharisees are sitting there with their arms crossed. They're angry. 
But Jesus isn't happy or angry. Luke tells us that he's weeping. And he speaks out and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you like a mother hen does her chicks, but you were unwilling. He knows that as he rides into Jerusalem, not only is he going to be rejected by Israel, but because they don't know the day of their visitation, because they don't recognize their deliverer is at the gates, it's going to be the end of Jerusalem. And a generation later, that entire city is sacked. And Israel is deported under General Titus, the Roman general. Uh, and they didn't return to the land of Israel until the 1940s. Okay, that's the end of the nation of Israel for a long duration. Jesus foresees all of that. And even though their judgment is deserved primarily because of their treatment of him, that he's about to endure that weekend, he weeps. He's so willing to be compassionate. How often I wanted to gather you, O Israel, like a hen does her chicks, but you wouldn't come. That's the same heart we see that God has here. So, verse 6, when the king asked the woman, she told him, so the king appointed an official to her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields, from the day that she left the land until now. Now, to be fair, that's probably not a lot in famine years, but it's a good start. Okay. Verse 7, Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, The man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, Okay, now if we've been paying attention, that name should flag in our memory. Okay. The king said to Hazael, take a present with you and go and meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? Okay, so the king of Syria is sick. The man of God is in close quarters and he hears it. And so he sends a big gift to ask, how's this going to turn out for me? Is this sick unto death or am I going to recover? And the one he sends at the head of the party is this man, Hazael. Now, in case you don't remember, when Elijah is at his lowest point and he says, God, I thought that up on Mount Carmel, as I stood against the prophets of Baal, as I called Israel to destroy all of their idolatry and turn back, I thought that was going to be the end. Uh, and now my life is threatened and everything's going to fall apart. And God says, no, that's not the way it's going to work. In fact, I have a mission for you. It's two parts. I want you to anoint Jehu, the general of the armies of Israel, and I want you to anoint Hazael, who's going to be the new king of Syria. But Elijah never does either of those things. We're going to see Elisha, his, uh, and that's the third thing he's told to do, I want you to appoint a successor. Elisha does both of those. This is that Hazael, and now he's coming and introducing himself to Elisha. Okay? And he's coming once again with a mission. Will the current king of Syria recover? And so notice, verse 9, he went to meet him. He took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camel loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elijah said to him, Go say to him, You shall certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me he shall certainly die. That's interesting. He says, yeah, tell him he's going to get healthy, but he's also going to die. In fact, depending on how your grammar, um, how your punctuation is parsed there, it may look like Elijah wants to deceive the king. That's what it reads like at first, and I don't think that's unintentional. It sounds like he's saying, I want you to tell him he's going to recover, but actually what's really going to happen is he's going to die. Okay. 
Now, we've actually seen similar tensions like this beforehand, but this one gets very quickly resolved because notice verse 11. He fixed his gaze and stared at him. This is Elijah staring at Hazael until he was embarrassed and the man of God wept. The idea here uh, of, of him being embarrassed is, is being over, overwhelmed. Okay? And so he just stops and he makes eye contact with Hazael and the room goes silent and he keeps staring. He's, uh, the, the language here in the Hebrew of what he's doing with his face is that his face goes still. He's just frozen in time. And then he just begins to weep. And notice verse 12, Hazael says, why does my Lord weep? And he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses. You will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little one and rip open the pregnant women. And so here, Elijah has this vision of Hazael's future and he knows that he's going to bring great pain upon Israel. Tremendous destruction on the people of Israel. Cruel attacks on the people of Israel. And so he weeps. And Hazael says, what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? He says, what, me? He speaks with humility here and he says, why, how would I even have the opportunity? I'm, I'm a nobody. Side note, we actually have a reference to this King Hazael on an archeological artifact found in the area of Damascus and he's referred to Hazael of nobody, okay? That's, that's his lineage. It's nothing, okay? And so this is a proper description. But notice, Elijah answered, the Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Okay, now the veil's getting pulled back a little bit. Okay, now we're starting to go, oh wait. Okay, so he's going to recover from his sickness, but he's not going to survive. You're going to be king, and you're going to be a terrible king that brings judgment on Israel. Okay. All of this is in peace, and that in, in pieces, and then verse 14, he departed from Elijah and came to his master who said to him, what did Elijah say to you? And he answered, he told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth, dipped it in water, and spread it over his face till he died. And so he uses the king's sickness and his weakness, and he smothers him in his sleep so that he can quietly see the king pass away without there being any sort of investigation so that he can take the throne, okay? This is what Elijah was seeing. This is why he says he'll recover from sickness. That's not what he's gonna die from. It's not the sickness that's gonna kill him. It's you, Hazael. He sees that this is going down. And so Hazael became king in his place. Now in the setup of the chessboard of God's judgment, there's only one piece missing. We have Elisha. And we've seen that just as promised, he has the double portion of Elijah. We have Hazael, now as a king over Syria, and we find out here that he is going to be a firecracker. He's going to do terrible things to the people of Israel. Um, but we have a little bit further to go. Okay, so first, verse 16, in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, okay, this is the king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, began to reign. Okay, so now we have parallel reigns here of Joram and Jehoram. And actually, in the Hebrew, it's Jehoram and Jehoram. Okay, uh, we're being helped here by the manuscripts to tell these two people apart. Um, but one is the king over Israel, 
and a descendant of Ahab, and the other is the king over Judah. And so that one comes into power in Judah, verse 17. He was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. Okay. And so as we already know, there's been some intermarriage between these two kings. That's why uh, Jehoram's father, Jehoshaphat, was so supportive of the family of Omri in times of war, right? Um, and so here, this wife, this daughter of Ahab, his granddaughter actually, if I remember right, leads Judah away from the Lord as well, okay? Yet, verse 19, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Okay. And so we see here God's restraint with Judah because of the promises he made to David. And then we get another factor, verse 20, in his days, in the days of the king of Judah, Jehoram, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Joram passed over to Zair with all his chariots and rose by night, and he and all the chariot commanders struck the Edomites who had surrounded him, but his army fled home. Okay, so they try and deal with this, and they're basically sent packing, you know, like yelping dogs. And so they just give up, and so now Edom is once again an independent power in Israel, no longer under the thumb of Judah. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Azaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Okay, so we move the story forward. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, the king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. As Isaiah was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. Okay. Anytime we read that, right, it's foreboding. We have to ask why. That's not a lifetime reign. And actually, we already have a good reason to guess why, right? Because Judah is turning away from the Lord during this time. And so his son takes the throne, but only for a year. And then <coughs> notice his mother's name was Ath uh, Athaliah. She was a granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel, which also makes her a daughter of Ahab, right? And so there's a lot of family influence of the household of Ahab. He also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done, for he was the son-in-law to the house of Ahab. He went with Joram to the son of Ahab to make war against Hazael, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram. And King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. Okay. The names are hard to keep track of, so here's the simple truth of it. Okay. Um, this king of Judah, who's closely allied with Ahab, uh, gets attacked by the new king of Syria that we just met, Hazael. And so they join forces, and one of them, uh, specifically the king of Israel, is wounded in battle. And while he's recovering, the king of Judah comes to see him. Okay. But once again, all the pieces are in place except one. And that's when we get to chapter 9, verse 1. Then, 
When this is going on, when the house of Judah has fallen to the influence of Ahab, and when they're both gathered together in recuperation from the attack of Hazael, then, chapter 9, verse 1, Elijah the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. Okay, so <clears throat> Jehu here is one of the generals of the army of Israel. And so basically, Elijah sends one of his servants uh, to go quickly. That's what it means to gird up the loins here, to tie up your robe. Run. I want you to run the whole way there. I want you to move him out of, you know, think of the mess hall, a military mess hall, and into a private meeting room. I want you to pour oil on his head and say, thus says the Lord, you're the new king of Israel. And this is to be done so privately that as soon as it's done, he's just supposed to get out of the camp, okay? Because recognize here, as soon as this happens, Jehu is in hostile territory, surrounded by the army of the king he's supposed to replace, okay? The prophet who's working here, this is an act of, uh, what's that word? I was going to say espionage. That's not the right word. It's treason, right? It's a treasonous act, okay? And so he's not to stick around for whatever happens next. But as we're going to discover consistently, Jehu is a tremendous motivator, okay? Uh, and so he runs, and you can imagine what this is like for Jehu. He's in the service of the king of Israel, and then all of a sudden a prophet shows up, dumps oil on his head and says, you're new, the new king, and then he leaves, Okay? So, verse 4, the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead, and when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, to which? All of us? And he said, to you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house. The young man poured oil on his head, saying to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all of the servants of the Lord. Here, the judgment is finally coming, and it's going to come at the hand of Jehu. Verse 8, for the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off Ahab, uh, every male, bond or free, in Israel. Uh, now, that phrase there for every male is, is a Hebrew idiom. Uh, it's literally all those who piss on the wall. Okay? Uh, or if you read the King James that actually keeps it intact, who pisseth on the wall. Um, it's only used as a curse. It's not just a generic category. You wouldn't you know, be calling people out for an event and invite them with this term. It's derogatory. Okay? What's striking here is that we find it in the mouth of a prophet to speak of the household of Ahab. And it's going to be significant uh, with the prophets of Baal in just a minute, which is why I draw your attention to it, um, even though it's a little uncouth. Okay, so verse 9, I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. Now, if you're counting, those are the two consecutive dynasties in Israel. And every one, God has raised up somebody to overthrow the last dynasty in judgment and promised them that if they will be faithful to the Lord, that their dynasty will continue, and they don't, and so another one is raised up. And so Jehu becomes the next replacement dynasty, okay? 
Um, so <clears throat> verse 10, and the dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. That last prophecy is a reiteration of what we were already told was going to happen to Jezebel, who has outlived now her husband for many, many years and is still very clearly pulling strings, at least religiously and probably politically, behind the scenes. So, verse 11, when Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said, you know the fellow and his talk. In other words, you know what those guys are like. <coughs> and they said, that's not true. Tell us now. So they know that he's just trying to distance this. Remember, he's also covered in oil. Okay? There's no hiding what's just happened. Something significant has happened. And so <coughs> he said, Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took their garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Now we can assume here the reason he's being quiet about this is the same reason the prophet ran away quickly, right? Because he's basically going to out himself as the greatest threat to the king that all of them are in the employ of. And not just foot soldiers, these are the commanders of the armies. This is the upper echelon, the closest guard that they have. But when he tells them, they're all on board. And they instantly, um, you know, symbolically take all of their clothes and lay it before him, uh, you know, and kneel down and say, Jehu is king. Thus, 14, Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now, Joram, with all of Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth-Gilead against Haziel, king of Syria, but King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wound that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Haziel, king of Syria. Okay, that's information we already have. It's just reminding us that right now, uh, King <coughs> Joram is in Jezreel recuperating away from the front lines of the Syrian war. So Jehu said, if this is your decision, he says this to the commanders, uh, if this is your decision, let no one slip out of the city to go and tell news in Jezreel. Then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel for Joram lay there and Ahaziah king of Judah had come down to visit Joram. Okay, so he leaves his commanders there and he says, you guard the city and don't let anyone out just in case someone overheard. And he mounts his chariot and he's headed for where the king is in Jezreel. Verse 17, now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel. Remember, this is the middle of a war. The king has already been badly wounded by the Syrians. They're on guard, okay? And he's <coughs> watching over the wall and he saw the company of Jehu, okay? That word there for company, it's not a general military term, it means a mob. It's a very big and disorderly group and probably that's exactly how the watchman perceives it. It's not a normal military march. There's no significance here. And in fact, we're gonna find out in a second, Jehu's leading the camp with a, uh, with a chariot uh, driving that is basically crazy. He's a crazy driver, okay? Um, and so there's this mob coming and they don't know what it is. They don't know what it means. He just says, I see a company. There's just a mob of people. And Joram said, take a horseman and send to meet them and let him say, is it peace? Okay. In other words, he says, send out a messenger to find out what's up here. Is this, is this for peace or for war? So a man on horseback went to meet him. Thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, what do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the, watch, uh, and the watchman reported saying, the messenger reached them, 
but he's not coming back, okay? So he instantly here just says, you know what's happening here, get in line, right? And this messenger who's supposed to be finding out what's becoming, uh, what's coming becomes a part of this mob, okay, behind Jehu. And then it happens again. <clears throat> Verse 19, he sent out a second horseman who came to them, and thus the king said, is it peace? And Jehu answered, what do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. Again, the watchman reported, he reached them, but he's not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. So now he's not close enough to recognize his face or his build or anything, but his driving habits, that makes him a dead ringer for Jehu. Okay. Uh, in fact, as a side note, that word there for furiously is the same one that's used of the prophet earlier who behaved like a madman. Right? He, he's driving like a crazy person is what the, word, uh, what the word means here. Actually, if you're familiar with Yiddish, the word in Hebrew here is meshuga, which, which is still used in this way of, of being crazy. Um, and so here this is coming on, and Joram still has no information. He knows that it might be Jehu. Remember, Jehu is one of his leading commanders. So, verse 21, he said, make ready, and they made ready his chariot, and Joram, the king of Israel, and Ahaziah, the king of Judah, set out each in his chariot, and they went to meet Jehu, and they met him at the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. Okay? When we split the difference, you know, think of this like a, a, a word problem from your algebra class. If Jehu is driving furiously towards Jezreel, right, and they're leaving the palace at their pace, where do they end up? Fortuitously, it's the vineyard of Naboth. It's the land that the household of Ahab had stolen. Okay. And so they pull up here, verse 22, when Joram saw Jehu, he said, is it peace, Jehu? And once again, I love the way Hebrew storytelling works. We've heard this phrase now three times. That was the question he sent over and over again. Now he asks in person. He answered, what peace can there be so long as the whorings and sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? He says, how can there be any peace when your mom has led us into the worship of Baal, when we have been spiritually adulterous against God, when she has employed you know, all of the sorcerers in these things? At this point, Joram gets the message. He realizes what's about to happen, and so he turns to run. He's in a chariot. I don't know how to say that in a chariot, but he turns to flee. Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot, which is also significant because that's exactly how Ahab died, right? There it was just a random shot from a bow and it just got him right between, right between his armor and he died and bled out in his chariot. And here the same thing happens. And notice Jehu's not messing around he just shoots him in the back as he runs away. There's nothing chivalrous about this. Um, and so that takes care of that. But then <coughs> notice verse 25. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. He was there. He remembers when this whole thing was prophesied. He didn't know that he had a part to play in it at the time, but he remembers this. Uh, and so he says here, verse 26, as surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth 
and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord. I will repay, repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. But we're not done yet. When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagan, and Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is also by Iblim. And he fled to Megiddo, and he died there. And so now he's killed not just the king of Israel, but also the king of Judah, remember, who is intermarried into the family of Ahab. Okay? His servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Azaziah began to reign over Judah. Okay, one last little confusing name here. This is Ahaziah, the son of Joram, not Ahaziah, the son of Joram. Okay. This is Ahaziah, the son of Joram, over Judah. The one we just watched die was Ahaziah, the son of Joram, over Israel. Okay. <clears throat> um, but, like I said, there's close family ties here, so that makes sense. Now, we were not expecting that. We were not anticipating that, except in the fact that we saw the influence of Ahab over the house of Judah. But there was no warning there. In fact, we don't even see a place where, where Jehu is commanded towards that. But Jehu is... He is a flaming comet. There is no stopping Jehu here. There's an old saying, it comes from one of the Greek philosophers. It says, the mills of the gods grind slowly, but they grind tremendously fine. Right? Speaking of judgment. Jehoram, now that he's here, there's nothing slow about it. And it is complete and total. Okay? So, <clears throat> verse 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. Okay. Now, <clears throat> she's basically the last piece of the power structure here. She hears what's happened, and she prepares by getting all dolled up. Okay. Um, and probably this involves the same wily way she's ruled everywhere else. But I want you to notice here, she doesn't seem to have a direct plan of seduction for Jehu. Whatever this is, it's more nuanced than that. Um, but nonetheless, she's going, to die, uh, she's going to die painted like a prostitute, not like royalty. That's the picture we should get here, okay? So verse 31, as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace? Again, with the peace thing, right? Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? Now, a couple of things here. First, do you remember Ahab's nickname for Elijah? the troubler of Israel, okay? And Elijah goes, you've got that backwards. You're the trouble of Israel. It's similar here, as we've already seen with Jehu, this, this question of peace, that's what he's here to bring about. The, the danger, the trauma, the conflict, that's on this end. But notice, she misidentifies him. She doesn't call him Jehu, but Zimri, and that's probably very sharp-tongued, and here's why, okay? Because... <coughs> Back in 1 Kings chapter 16, it is Zimri who takes out the line of Jeroboam, okay? But Zimri takes the throne, sneakily plots a death, and rules for seven days, and then is overthrown, okay? Jehu is a usurper, just like Zimri was, 
and she doesn't see anything better for him. She is unimpressed and unafraid. Okay. And I want you to notice again, uh, we see here Jehu operating not directly, but we see him operating through his influence. And so notice, she says this, and he lifted up his face to the window and said, who is on my side? Who? And two or three eunuchs looked out at him. Just like with the messengers, just like with the commanders, everybody is on Jehu's side. And so these are the servants that are in direct employ of Jezebel herself. And he just says, anyone up there who stands with me and not with her? And three men lean out. And so notice verse 33, he said, throw her down. So they threw her down and some of the blood splattered on the wall and on the horses and they trampled on her. Okay. And so <clears throat> a very surprising and gory and in fact that's not the whole story verse 34 then he went in and ate and drank and he said see now this cursed woman and bury her for she's a king's daughter so he plans here to give her the dignity of a burial but remember we read that that was not going to happen we read in fact that her blood was going to be licked up by the dogs and so notice verse 35 when they went to bury her they they found no more of her than her skull and the feet and the palms of her hands when they came back and told him, he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that, uh, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. Okay? You know in those CSI episodes where they can't ID the corpse? That's what that last statement is about there, right? Um, there's not enough left, of, uh, left for her identity to be proven, which is a terrible act of judgment. But remember, her hands are drenched in the blood of faithful Israelites, in the blood of God's prophets, right? Um, but we're not done here. Remember, the judgment was going to come not just on this particular descendant, and this particular wife of Ahab, but the entire household, not a man will be left standing, and that's where we get to in chapter 10. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. Now remember here in Hebrew, words like son are semantically broader than our word son. Okay? So these are probably not 70 sons, it's a collection of 70 sons and grandsons. Okay? It's probably two generations worth of children. It's the entire lineage of Ahab that are in this house um, in Samaria. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria to the rulers of the city, to the elders, and to the guardians of the sons of Ahab. Okay, so he writes to the elders of Israel. We've encountered these over and over again. These are the civil leaders. And so he writes them in verse 2. Now then, as soon as the letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses, fortified cities also and weapons, Select the best and fittest of your master's son and set him on your father's throne and fight for your master's house. Okay, take that for what it is. It's a threat. He's basically saying, I'm coming. You know, the hatchet has just come through the door and here's Jehu. That's the idea here. But, but he also is anticipating that they're going to select one of these to be the new king and Jehu plans to take care of him as well. But what have we seen with Jehu over and over again? There is a large force of dissatisfaction with the household of Omri. Okay? And so he writes these elders, but verse 4, they were exceedingly afraid and said, Behold, two kings cannot stand before him. How then can we stand? 
So he who was over the palace and he who was over the city together with the elders and with the guardians sent to Jehu saying, we're your servants and we'll do all that you tell us. We will not make anyone king. Do whatever's good in your eyes. Okay, so they take a completely hands-off approach. Verse six, then he wrote to them a second letter saying, if you are on my side, if you're ready to obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come and meet me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. Now, just a side note, that's smart strategy, okay? He, he says, okay, if you're with me, then you actually have to be with me. You can't just be neutral and save your own skin. You have to become a participate, participant in this. Um, in fact, we're going to see that one of the things that he feels secures the household of Samaria in, in their favor is all of the death that he lays at their doorstep, okay? And so he gives them the instruction that they're to kill these 70 descendants of Ahab themselves, okay? Um, specifically by beheading. Now the king's son, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as the letter came, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. When the messengers came and told him they have brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. Now, there's no getting away from the goriness or the severity or the intensity of this, okay? He basically sets up a press conference, and in attendance is 70 severed heads, okay, to one side of the stage and to the other, to both sides of the gate. Uh, there is a pile of heads. Uh, verse 9, in the morning when he went out, he stood and said to all the people, you are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who struck down all these? Okay. Do you see what he's doing here? He's laying, I don't want to say the guilt, because I don't think that's how Jehu would say it, but he's laying the death of the entire household of Ahab as being a community effort. Okay. This is a unifying attempt to make sure that nobody can come out and, uh, you know, like Jezebel did, call him Jehu the usurper. This is a popular movement. This is Mussolini. Okay. Um, not some sort of dark horse who's coming out of nowhere. People are for this, and he wants to make sure that that's publicly known. Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab, for the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab and Jezreel, all his great men and his close friends and his priests, until there was none remaining. Then he sent out and went to Samaria, Okay. Now he's headed back to the capital city. He's about to be enthroned, but on the way, when he was at Beth-Eked of the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah. And he said, who are you? And they answered, we're relatives of Ahaziah, and we came down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. In other words, this is more of the king of Judah's extended family, and they're here to see Jezebel. They don't know what's happened yet. And so, you probably can imagine where this is going. Verse 14, he said, take them alive, and he took them alive and slaughtered them at the pit of Bethag, 42 persons, and he spared none of them. And when he departed from there, he met uh, Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, is your heart true to my heart as mine is to yours? And Jehonadab answered and said, it is. Okay. So he encounters this man we've not met yet. All we know is his name and his father's name and that he's known Jehu for apparently quite a while. And he says, are you with me the way I'm with you? Okay. 
Now, that's a little bit hard to understand. What is the purpose of this person? But what happens uh, is the Rechabites become a, a religious minority in Israel who by family, kind of like the Amish, take a different path than the rest of Israel. Okay? Um, and effectively, what, what their life looks like uh, is they, um, they basically take a pledge of abstinence against alcohol. Uh, and then they also have a posture of not owning any property, uh, and they kind of move out into the wilderness. And they kind of their good old days for them is when Israel was in the wilderness under God's shepherding. Uh, and they basically, as a as a witness of how unfaithful Israel is, they distance themselves and live apart. Okay. In fact, we find them in Jeremiah chapter 35, and God uses the Rechabites as an object lesson to complain about. Israel as a whole. And so he, he puts on, once again, imagine a press conference, a public meeting with the Rechabites. He sits them at a banquet table in front of all of these representatives of Israel, and then he puts wine before them, and he says, go ahead, have a drink. And they say, no. We're committed to the, to the you know, call of our father to abstain from all these things. And then Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, the Rechabites follow their crazy dad's practices, and you, my people, won't even listen to me. Okay. And so they're this long-standing family of religious purity, effectively. Okay. Now do you see why there's a little bit of unity here? Jehonadab gets the need for the end of the Baal cult, for the end of the house of Ahab. He's looking for religious restoration. But why does Jehu need Jonadab? Notice, um, halfway through verse 15, is your heart true to mine heart, is yours to yours? And Jehonadab answered, it is. And Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. So he gave his hand, and Jehu took him up with him into the chariot. Okay. What is that? It's public. He wants to be seen right next to Jonadab as he travels into Samaria. He wants him right there and present. This is a religious endorsement of a political official. That's what this is. Okay. In fact, notice, he says, verse 16, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord, which is about the most political promise I can imagine. He basically, come and, come and see what I'm going to do for God, which is the first place outside of all the blood where we go, uh-oh, what's going on here? Okay. There's no getting around here that um, Jehu is operating as the hammer of God on the house of Ahab, but... What is his goal here? Why is he in it? What is he after? And here, <coughs> we see almost like Saul, a questionable heart. One that says, honor me before the people. One who says, I'm going to impress you with what I'm about to do, right? It's, it's place for pause. It's place for concern. Verse 17, when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had wiped them out according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. We're probably breaking triple digits now in the death toll. Okay, It's getting very thorough, but we still have the Baal cult to deal with. And so notice verse 18, then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. We go, wait, what? That's not how that sentence is supposed to end, right? He says, you haven't seen endorsement of the Baal religion at all. Just wait for the Baal revival that I'm going to put on. 
He says, verse 19, Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. Remember, he's being enthroned here. So this makes a lot of sense. He wants to present his victory uh, as being a work of Baal. But, we're told, Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. Okay? So he's actually doing this to wipe it out in one fell swoop. Right? Instead of laying out a policy, this is a sting operation. Right? He's quietly setting up a trap for all of the prophets of Baal and all of the worshipers in Israel. But I think it's important and even helpful to contrast this with the last time we saw a standoff with the prophets of Baal. Okay. When Elijah does it, does he do it with deception? No. What's happening here is similar, but that similarity actually draws out a tremendous difference. Okay. And so notice here, uh, they all come, verse 20, Jehu ordered, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it, and Jehu sent throughout all of Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. It's a packed house. And he said to those who were in charge of the wardrobe, bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. Okay, so now they're all properly clothed. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. And he said to the worshipers of Baal, search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshipers of Baal. Right, if, if this was Steven Spielberg, can you hear these sentences? Make sure there's no one faithful among you, right? This is the idea. Look to your left, you know, use the buddy system. Are we all on the same page here? But his real concern here is that he only wants the Baalites here. And then verse 24, they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said, the man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life, okay? He wants this to be a full eradication, and so he holds all of the men surrounding the building responsible for even one escape. It will cost him their life, verse 25. So as soon as he made an end of the offering of burnt offerings, Jehu said to the guard and the officers, go in and strike them down, let not a man escape. So when they put him to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal, and they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it, and they demolished the pillar of Baal, and they demolished the house of Baal, and made it a latrine to this day. Okay? He turns the entire temple into a public bathroom. He takes out the astreth uh, um, poles um, and lights them all on fire, and then he takes this stone of worshiping Baal. And we're pretty sure, um, based on some other archaeology, what he probably did is got the stone red hot and then dumped cold water on it so it just broke like the dark crystal, right? just to make significantly the point that this was not going to be a thing anymore. And then he turns it from a place of uh, worship into, uh, into a latrine, into um, a public bathroom. And so thus, Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. Okay. Complete, entire, total. But, verse 29, Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. He doesn't bring about reform or revival, just destruction. What he does on behalf of God is entirely negative, the subtraction of the household of Ahab, the subtraction of the cult of Baal. 
but he doesn't overcome Israel's long-standing unfaithfulness to God in the altars. He leaves them standing. He doesn't call them to seek the Lord. And so, verse 30, the Lord said to Jehu, because you've done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. So he's given the same promise as the other usurpers that God has used, but he also is unfaithful. So he's not going to last either. Now remember, what we were wondering here is, is this going to be enough to put Israel on the right track and to avoid judgment? And we see here it's a step in the right direction, but it's incomplete. And so then we go, okay, wait, what was Haziel about? Was he really just, just to get the kings to Jezreel? Was that his whole purpose? And unfortunately, remember Elijah's prophecy. No, it's worse than that. And so notice here, verse 32, in those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. It's such a significantly descriptive phrase, isn't it, right? It's like if you took the map of Israel and you're just trimming parts off of it, okay? Their control of the promised land is shrinking, and that's because of Haziel. He defeated them throughout the territory of Israel from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, the Reubenites, the Manassehites from Aor, which is by the valley of Arnon, that is, um, that is Gilead and Bashan. In other words, this is the area we call the Transjordan. Okay, so it's not part of the initial promised land. It's the one that the two and a half tribes say, we'd like to settle on this side of the river. Okay. And so we see they're also the first ones to lose the promised land, to be cut off from Israel here. But also, like I said, it means that the borders of Israel are shrinking. Um, and then we're told in verse 34, the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Jehu slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria and Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years, okay? So it starts big and then he's on the throne for 28 years. His son takes over, but we have plenty of reason for concern, okay? In fact, when we get to the book of Hosea, Hosea gives us an added commentary on Jehu. And I think it's an important one to keep in mind. This is what it says, okay? And so remember, Hosea is commanded to take a, a prostitute as a wife, and then he has a couple of children through his wife, Gomer, and he gives them prophetic names. One of those children he names Jezreel, okay? That same place that we've been talking about. And so listen to what it says in chapter 1, verse 4. The Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And so here Jehu is appointed and he carries out what he's supposed to do, but God doesn't approve of his method or his extent. And we're not really told here specifically. We can't necessarily draw a line around the dead and say, this far but no further. We do see a lot of places where he's coloring outside of the boundaries, right? As I mentioned, he's given no command to harm the king of Judah. But he's attached to Ahab, and so he goes, right? There is extensive blood on Jehu's hand. And so he says, name the child Jezreel, because I'm going to put, um, I'm going to punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. 
And then even scarier, he says, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Okay. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Remember how we've talked about near and far prophecies? How prophets made promises in their day that were demonstration that their word for far off days were trustworthy? The house of Jehu is going to become a personification of what's coming for Israel. Another warning in a long line of warnings that is unheeded. Okay. And so it's easy, it's easy to throw Jehu under the bus and go, fine, good, we don't have to stand with him. But there's still Israel, right? And they stand in the same boat and they're participating in the same sins. And as much as Jehu doesn't overthrow the worship of those two golden calves, so also Israel frequents them regularly and participates in it, right? There is a collectiveness to what's going on here. So what we have, as we've had throughout First and Second Kings, is an interwovenness of God's patience and his judgment, of God's warnings and his mercy, of God's salvation and this impending consequence that's coming. Um, all of First and Second Kings uh, feels like sliding down a slope, right? And every once in a while, a little traction has gotten and they're not falling anymore. And then it just begins to slide again. And remember, the book is written to an audience who's sitting in that final consequence, asking, you know, um, like that talking head song, how did I get here? This is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife, right? This is how they got here. It's a reminder of God's continuous faithfulness and willingness to provide mercy and their unwillingness to repent. Okay, let's pray. Father, I would fear tonight that we would expect better things of us instead of ask better things from